Welcome to the Conscious Woman Podcast. This is your host, Pavna Dur. Our goal with this podcast is to bring you interesting and insightful conversations on a range of topics that will support you in both living and leading more consciously. From conscious leadership and conscious inclusion to conscious eating, conscious parenting and conscious fashion. This podcast is in conjunction with the leadership development work that we do to support women leaders in leading with mindfulness and compassion. To learn more, please go to shinomics.com. Welcome, friends, for joining us for this episode with Dr. Rohini Anand. Dr. Anand is widely recognized as a leading thought leader and expert in the global diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI space. She was previously the global chief diversity officer for Sodexo. In fact, Rohini is credited with transforming Sodexo from an organization with a legacy of a race discrimination class action litigation against it into one with an iconic and award-winning DEI leadership brand. In fact, it was even featured in a Harvard Business Review case study. Dr. Anand is a highly sought-after DEI advisor, board member, published author, and speaker. Her work has been featured in CNBC, The New York Times, and The Washington Post, and she has appeared on CNN, Bloomberg, and the National Public Radio in the U.S. In her latest book, Leading Global Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Dr. Anand offers five proven principles for companies to advance DEI across countries and cultures. So let's dive in. Welcome, Rohini, to the Conscious Woman podcast. I'm excited to speak to you about inclusive leadership. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Wonderful to be with you, Bhavna. Great. Rohini, to start us off, I would love for you to share a little bit about your personal journey, because if there's one thing I know for most diversity and inclusion professionals that I know, and I know this is true for you as well, is there's always a personal story and a passion and purpose that drives a lot of people to come into this work. So I'd love to know what brought you here. Yeah, so terrific. And I'm just really excited to be in conversation with you, particularly because a shared background in terms of being Indian and Indian women. So I'm excited to share my story and you're absolutely right for those that are involved in DEI work diversity equity and inclusion work it's very personal for them and my story is very integral to who I am because I grew up in Mumbai I grew up with people basically looking like me and I belong to the majority religion Hinduism and so I, I share this often because it's not intuitive for people in the United States in particular which is where I'm based and surrounded by others like me, I had the privilege of really not thinking about my identity. And I moved to the United States as a young, single Indian woman. And that move to the U.S. was an inflection point in my journey, both literally and metaphorically. And my identity shifted from being a person who saw herself at the center of her world, surrounded by others like her, to being a minority, to being an immigrant, and to being a foreigner. And to be quite honest, Bhavna, I was completely unprepared for that. And it was only when I was identified as a minority did I realize the privileges that came with being part of the majority. I was part of the majority, as I said, growing up in India, and I hadn't recognized 
my privilege in that way. And I was honestly unable to until I was perceived as a minority and I experienced things differently. So this realization that identity is situational, that it's fluid, basically informed my research that I did at University of Michigan and still informs my work. So this vocation is very personal to me. It's based on my personal experience of being a first generation immigrant in the United States, moving from being part of the majority to being perceived as a minority, organizing my privileges that I hadn't recognized, but also of going through experiences of being perceived as a minority. So it's, it's a personal journey. It's, the story is very personal to me. And understanding what it means to be perceived as a mi minority, as an outsider, is very much at the heart of DI work. So today, I like to say that my vocation and my avocation are perfectly aligned. And my calling is to level the playing field and to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to really succeed. So that's a bit about my journey to this work. Yeah, and what incredible work you have done in the DEI space so far. Just reading your background and learning more about you, and of course, reading your incredible book, which we'll get to in just a moment. You have clearly such a wealth of experience, knowledge, insights in this space, informed in large part, as you share clearly from your work as the global DEI officer at Sudexo, where I believe you spent close to 20 years and had just, just incredible experience. And so before we dive into some of those learnings from that work, just to set the context, it may be obvious to you and I, but for someone who's new to this, tell us it just in simple words, how would you define diversity and inclusion and why is it so important that we focus on it in our workplaces? Yeah, so for me, it, the definitions are diversity is a given, right? It's all of those differences that, we're, that we represent. Uniqueness, differences, so it's a given, diversity is a fact. Inclusion is the act of creating that environment where everyone can succeed. It's an equity for me is an important glue between the diversity and inclusion. It's about removing those systemic barriers that prevent people from achieving their most full potential. So to me, it's about diversity, equity, and inclusion creating. We have a diverse workforce, but we have to create that culture where everyone can be successful. And in order to do that, we have to remove those barriers that prevent people from being the best that they can be. And the outcome of that is belonging. So when you feel included, when those systemic barriers have been removed, then you have the sense of belonging. So for some people, I mean, there's all these acronyms, right? D-E-I-B, D-E-I-B-A, A standing for accessibility. But for me, it's really about knowing that we wanna have, and we do have a diverse workplace and workforce. We want to create that culture, that act of creating that culture and then removing those systemic barriers so everyone can be successful and have a, feel a sense of belonging. So inclusion happens when your uniqueness is validated and you have a sense of belonging. So it's this tension between the two. Does that help? Yes, absolutely. I think you, you put it so well. So Rohini, I'm sure you have gotten this question a million times. So mm -hmm. let me ask this 
for a million and first time, which is the way you just defined the ENI. Any rational person listening to it would absolutely agree with you and say, yes, that's what we need. We need more of that in the workplace. This is this would help everyone. But yet, when we look at the state of diversity inclusion in the workplace today, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. So why has progress been so slow? Yeah, so I think there are a couple of things, right? So change really happens at the intersection of the of systems and people, of processes and people. So you have to impact and change systems to remove those systemic barriers that remove unconscious bias in those systemic barriers. But you also have to impact people. You have to impact their behaviors, their mindsets, and ultimately their actions. And that's a tough part. So I think what needs to happen is at the individual, at the organizational, at the societal level, change has to happen. And people don't, in organizations, people don't see it as systemic, a systemic culture change process. They see diversity as initiatives, as check the box, as one the one and done. So you've had organizations, particularly post the murder of George Floyd, give over $600 billion for social justice causes. And they've made these lofty statements and they've hired chief diversity officers, which to me sometimes is the easiest thing to do. These are performative actions, but to move from performative to sustainable, you really have to see this as a systemic culture change effort. And that's what organizations are not necessarily doing. At the individual level, you have to create allies. Those that really use their, their own identities and themselves for the benefit of others. At the organizational level, you really have to make sure that this becomes common practice, that you're creating an inclusive culture, not just when it's breaking news, but it becomes part of everyday behavior and lexicon. And then I think at the societal level, organizations have to step up and take bold stands. So it really has to be part of sort of day-to-day practice. And the change is slow because organizations have not seen this as central to their business success, have not seen it as something that's absolutely critical for the advancement of business. And they've seen it basically as an initiative to check the box. And when that happens, when there's an economic downturn or when there are other business priorities, diversity is the first thing to get jettisoned. And to be honest, it's that very thing that can pull organizations out of economic slumps or out of a a downward spiral. Because the data is very clear. The data is clear and there's been studies done by McKinsey, by Credit Suisse, by Catalyst, by many other organizations that demonstrate very clearly the connection between both gender diversity and ethnic diversity and financial outcomes, positive financial outcomes. There's also clear data that shows the correlation between gender and ethnic diversity and innovation revenue, right? So when you have that inclusive environment, when first of all, when you have diversity, you're better able to meet the needs of a very diverse customer base. And customers and clients today, particularly Gen X, Y, and Z, are looking for organizations that are purpose-driven. And these are the organizations that they want to belong to. 
that they want to basically go to work for. So I think there is a talent argument there as well in terms of ensuring that you get the best and the brightest talent. So there's a talent argument. There's an argument of when you get that diversity, you're then meeting the needs of your diverse workforce, uh, of the diverse client and customer base. And then there's financial outcomes. That when you have diversity and inclusion, you do get better financial outcomes. You create more shareholder value. And there's more innovation as well when you have an inclusive work environment and people work together. In fact, let me just share with you very quickly. Sodexo did a study. And in this study, we looked at data from 50,000 managers in over 70 different entities around the world. And what we found was that we correlated gender balanced teams or teams with 40 to 60 percent women with um, with the Sodexo KPIs. So the Sodexo KPIs were client retention, employee retention, employee engagement, financial outcomes and safety. And what we found was that when you had 40 to 60 percent women, they, those teams outperformed on every one of those five KPIs, every one of those key performance indicators. But when you get over 60 percent women, the results start plateauing. So it's not that one gender is better than the other or men are better than women, men, women or the other way around. But it is about the fact that you need that optimal mix for innovation, for productivity, for retention, for serving your clients. The data is clear that there is a bottom line benefit to this work, but I think people are approaching it, organizations are approaching it as discrete activities rather than a systemic, holistic culture change effort that can benefit the business. So is that clear, Pavna? Absolutely. I think what you've just shared really validates the experience of a lot of women that we work with at Shinomics. Our work is on advancing diversity, inclusion and development for women. And last year, we ran this research to really understand why do women leave an organization so not just leaving the workforce altogether but why do they even choose to move from one one organization to another and especially starting with last year when we saw the great resignation and great reshuffle we were really curious to to understand what's happening if you ask the prevailing myth especially i find a lot of leaders assume women are leaving for personal reasons right better work-life balance or they think their family is a bigger priority but quite the contrary 60 percent almost 60 percent of the women who answered this survey told us the number one reason why they choose to leave is when they feel undervalued and i think that just highlights the point you just made that if organizations are only focusing on those check-in-the-box measures and not really focusing on that culture change where women, in this case, really, truly feel that sense of belonging and really feel included, they're not going to be able to hold on to that talent. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think you're absolutely right, Bhavna. And it, it mirrors the study that McKinsey did, right, about women leaving the workforce. And in the United States, it was also minorities, people of color. And what they found was very similar, that the managers thought that people, that women were leaving because of work-life balance, because of benefits, etc. And yes, that mattered. But really what mattered was that 
through all this, they didn't feel a sense of belonging, a sense of being included, and therefore decided to opt out. Now, we call it the Great Resignation, and now it's, you said, reshuffle. It's now also being called the Great Attrition, because it's not necessarily that now what's the trend is, it's not that people are just opting out of the workforce, but they're moving, as you said, the reshuffle from one place to another, because when they find that purpose-driven organization with a sense of belonging, then they're staying. Yes, absolutely. So when it comes to creating these purpose-driven organizations, mm -hmm. which we know in the end position themselves to attract this kind of talent, you've laid out some really powerful principles in your book for DEI &E professionals as well as leaders broadly Thanks. to drive and advance an effective agenda. So I'd love for us to one by one go through those principles because I think each of those principles really are highly impactful. So beginning with the first principle, you talk about really what you want to do is make that global DE&I strategy local. And love for you to share your experience from Sodexo in particular, because I know there you were, one of the things you had to do was to localize that global DE&I strategy for the Indian context, for example. Mm -hmm. I'd love to know how you went about doing that for India and what were some of the learnings that emerged from that? Yeah, just by way of background on the principles in the book, and you're right, I do lay it out in the book, Leading Global Diversity, Equity and Inclusion. And actually, Bhavna, it's now being printed in India in paperback and is very reasonable by Penguin Random House. So hopefully your readers will pick it up. But honestly, given the complex and the dynamic nature of this work, there's really no sort of quick checklist or playbook. And honestly, best practices are far from enough. But what I have found is that there's some principles that provide a through line when I did this work. So particularly doing this work globally, and I will share examples from India. So these principles are simple statements, but they include my experience, they include the experiences of other colleagues and successes and anecdotes from my colleagues. They're simple, but they're very disruptive. And they're not designed to provide standards or plug and play templates on what, based on what's worked, particularly based on what's worked in the U.S. Because very often that's what happens, that you have U.S.-based MNCs and these sort of things that have worked in the United States and get attempted to be replicated elsewhere in the world. And that's a foundational mistake to replicate what's worked in one part of the world and another part of the world. But these principles... I find can be applied with sensitivity to any culture because what it does is to empower leaders to develop their own solutions. So they're organically, so they're not mimicking any one experience, but honestly, the ability to recognize how these issues are expressed and to translate them appropriately within a cultural context really requires us to draw on those sort of multiple cultural frameworks. And that's a learned thing. And I've stumbled and made mistakes along the way, which I will share with you. The first principle is what I call make it local. And, uh, you know, global diversity change has to be anchored in an understanding of the local context, it has to be informed by the history, the culture, the language, the laws of a place. And we have to consider how identity is defined, expressed, power structures, dominant subordinate groups, which all differ. And understanding that context is a first step in, in developing strategies to advance underrepresented group. It doesn't mean accepting the status quo because you can push for change 
but you have to do it in concert with local change agents and you, who can help you to find the right entry points and ensure relevance. So that's a bit about the background. And what I found in doing localizing the work to India, very often people talk in the US talk about anti-racism work and want to do anti-racism training around the world. Now, what does anti-racism work mean in India? It really does not resonate. You have to be able to translate it into the dominant and subordinate groups in India. So you've got to look at religious minorities. You've got to look at caste. You've got to look at um, people from the Northeast who've encountered a lot of discrimination in India. So that is translating your dominant subordinate groups into the Indian context. Very often, I know that I've encountered situations where organizations have used a very Western framework and say, let's say it's a training, and they'll talk about what is, what is, talk about your trigger words. And the trigger words they use are trigger words like guns or race. These are some of the trigger words, or abortion. These are the trigger words that they use. Now, in the Indian context, you know, that again, really, it does not play. There may be other trigger words. It may be divorce or something else that really does push a button. So I think being able to localize is extremely important. In fact, maybe I'll share a quick story, Bhavna. When I, and this is a story about my own sort of inadequacies in some senses. So when I started doing this work for Sodexo in India, I went to India and I was with a group of women, entry-level women managers, about 20 of them. And we were talking about advancing their careers at Sodexo and I started talking about leadership development and mentoring, etc. And I was met with these sort of blank stares and clearly I was not, there was something that was not resonating. I wasn't connecting with the women and I thought growing up in India, I knew the situation. I was I knew what I went in thinking with these presumptions that I knew what was needed. And then I just stopped and I said to them, I said, what can this, what can we do to help advance your careers? What is it that you need? And so one of the women very gingerly raised her hand and said that, look, we live in joint families. And when we go home, we have to take care of the house, the cook the meals and our mother-in-law gets upset if we're late for activity or a project that we're doing at work. So we're really not able to do that. And it really, it, and then of course that sort of got all of the women going and they shared their own personal stories, which was wonderful, but it was a big eye opener for me. And this speaks to how do you localize the work? Because that first principle that I talked about is make it local. And to be honest, I had forgotten about the multi-generational joint family dynamic in India and I had forgotten about the role of the Indian because I had lived in the United States for as long as I had and if I can you imagine others doing this work particularly from the outside I've forgotten about the role of the Indian woman as a mother and wife but also as a daughter-in-law and in the process I've forgotten my own limitations as a multi-dimensional being because I focused on one aspect of my shared identity with these women and I overlooked the many differences so I, that misstep taught me one of those earliest lessons. First of all, it's not useful to export initiatives that have worked in one part of the world. The second is that I need to check my, my own presumptions. And then the third is not assessing situations with a limited one-dimensional worldview. Yes. 
So I'm curious, Rohini, with the example that you just gave, which is such a great example of how the reality for women in India is different from their counterparts in US and elsewhere in the sense that they are managing multiple responsibilities. So at a practical level, what is as a DNI leader or a business leader, how what would it entail to create an inclusive environment, keeping that in mind? Yeah, I think basically what you need to do is this is not about fixing women. Okay. It's yeah. not about it's about basically fixing the environment, the culture. And in order to do that, the people who are in power are still men. So you've got to bring male allies along. You've got to be able to really show them the benefit that it has to the organization, to the culture, to them personally. And that takes multiple strategies. It might be demonstrating the business case. At Sodexo, for instance, there was a lot of work that we did where ultimately diversity became a differentiator and a competitive advantage that really allowed Sodexo India to get and keep clients. So what happened was that everything, so this is a very, Sodexo is a food and facilities management company. It's a very commoditized business. But the one sort of, and it's a commoditized business, and it's also a business where food and facilities management gets delegated to someone fairly junior in, in an MNC, for, an, for instance. But diversity and inclusion is a C-suite issue, right? So when you connect top to top on diversity, it creates a whole different relationship. And... The, and the sort of leadership and diversity gave Sodexo an edge into client organizations. They could make connections. They could get access to clients. So it became very much of a business development strategy. So you've got to be able to figure out what is it. And once it becomes that, the CEO has to talk about it. Once the CEO talks publicly about it, they have to deliver on it. So it becomes this virtuous cycle, if you will. So you've got to really figure out what that, that trigger is to help you to get male allies. It may be the business case. It may be the data. It may be, in my experience, it often is something very, very personal that brings leaders along. Can I just share one story with you, Bhavna, which is not, an, it's not a story from India. It's actually a leader from Europe, but I think it could translate. So this particular leader, he was on the sidelines, quite resistant. And I had to figure out a way to bring him along. And I knew that he wanted to network with other CEOs. So I got him involved in a cross-company mentoring program. And he mentored a woman from a different company. And this woman shared, they built a very trusting relationship. She shared her experiences of being marginalized, of being the only woman, etc. And then she got laid off. So she shared with him her experiences of being laid off and how unfair it was. So he came to me after that and he said, he said that I can't believe that women go through these experiences in the workplace. I don't want anyone in my organization to go through this experience. And he said, if you had told me if someone had said a woman got laid off, I would have said those are the breaks of the game. But he had built this trusting relationship. He realized that what she went through was really unfair. So he said, I want every one of my 12 direct reports to mentor a woman, and they were all men, 
to mentor a woman from a different part of the company. So each of them mentored, quotes unquote, sponsored a woman. And of those 12, nine went on to become country leaders, to head up significant pieces of business. So this sort of allyship, you've got to bring people along in some way. You've got to bring men along once they're there. Now, this CEO has left Sodexo. Oh, this he was not a CEO who was a business leader in Europe. He's left Sodexo. He's now CEO of a large organization in Europe. And he's brought me in to help him with changing the culture in this very large organization. So it has this sort of ripple effect of allyship, but you've got to be able to figure out how to bring men along because they're still the ones in power. And that is really what helps to change the culture. It's almost like you're using power to disrupt power, if you will. Yes. I think I know this is a long-winded answer to your question, but your question was, how do you shift yeah. uh, things? And I think you've got to really include men in the solution because they're part of the problem. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think this that also leads us to principle two, where you talk about how leaders, exactly as you just said, leaders have to disrupt themselves right. and transform themselves almost to be able to lead this kind of change. And in fact, in the book, you have some great examples from India as well. There was this one example you yeah. shared of Sodexo CEO in India who had a similar personal change story. And I think to your point, yes, we need more male allies. Otherwise, it's going to be very difficult to advance this, especially from a gender diversity and inclusion perspective, because if we only have women helping women, progress is going to be painfully, That's painfully slow. So in, in your experience, and you've had such fantastic experience in this space, what's been among the most impactful strategies that you've been able to use to influence leaders or male allies to, to come around and become proponents and champions of this kind of change? Yeah, I think you're right, Bhavna. I think that essentially when leaders embrace diversity with this sort of authentic purpose and passion, the organization goes from what I call performative action to really sustainable progress. But to do that, leaders have to internalize the benefit of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that does, as you said, require a disruption of their worldview. And it takes sometimes a sort of painful process of introspection. And Sometimes it happens with data and facts and the business case. Very often it happens because of some sort of an experience. Very often it's personal story sharing, but you have to be mindful of the toll that it takes. You know, this woman, the story I shared, for her to share her stories, it takes a toll on her to share her lived experiences with someone. And so I think leaders also have to be very selective of and maximize each of those uh, stories. But uh, transformative leaders, really, that, that sort of leadership that it takes, combine that sort of inclusive mindset and behaviors with very concrete action. Because it's a personal behavior that demonstrates your conviction, but it's action that signals your commitment. Now, you talk about this particular leader in India, right? Who was, he basically led diversity as he would lead any other business priority in India. And there were a couple of things that really helped bring him along. So I think you almost have to personalize your strategy. You have to know which leader you're working with. So there are two things that happened. 
So one of those things was basically that I invited him to join this women's advisory group. It was an internal advisory group at Sodexo called So Together. And he was maybe one of three men in that group. And these were very senior level women. And so for him, the experience of coming from India, being one of the only men, probably was apart from me, the only Indian in that group. And it, a, a group of very senior leaders. And for the first time, he was very conscious of being a male, particularly being a male, because he had been in environments where he was the only Indian. But so that was quite, quite an experience for him. And he was, he, he said, I realize what it feels like for only women and how difficult it is to speak up and to express yourself. And then when he would go back to India, he went back really charged and he would do a lot of work. So, the, so that particular experience, but also what he saw was we would host these meetings in different cities around the world. And in conjunction with the business meeting we had with this group, we'd also invite clients and other managers to, to attend an evening reception. And he saw how this particular topic was galvanizing the clients, how it was engaging the clients. And he started replicating that when he went back to India. So there was two things, his experience of being a minority of being the only and what that did. So it was a deep disruptive experience for him. The second was the business benefit. He saw that and was able to replicate it. But then he shared with me also his own personal, when he talked in public, he talked about the client benefit. And that's what he would speak about all the time is the benefit that he got as a, the business benefit that he got. But the third thing that happened was that he shared with me that he had moved to London for business reasons and his wife had given up her job and had to move with him. And he didn't realize the toll that it took on her because he was away at work. She was not working at that time because she was not able to and just had given up her career to follow him. And when he realized just what, what a toll it took on her to do that and how women have to keep doing that very often is to sacrifice their careers, whether it's for family or for spouse or to move, he then went back to India and allowed her career to lead. But it was that experience and what he heard from her about being a woman in the workplace, particularly after she had a child and her experiences in India in that situation and the sort of assumptions that were made that now that she had a family, she was not committed and statements, not these are not her statements. I'm saying generally women hear statements. If they leave early, it is, oh, they're not committed to their work. They're just interested in family and therefore they're leaving early. If the women leave late from work, it is what kind of a woman is she's not committed to her family and she's staying late at work. So it's a no-win situation either way with double standards that are used for women. You never hear those statements used for men. It was a combination of those experiences that were disruptive for him. So I think you have to understand your audience and then figure out what those experiences are that, that would bring those leaders along. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe that's what we need more of. We need more male allies with vulnerability sharing their stories because nothing moves hearts 
more than stories do. And I think you're right, Bhavna. It's with vulnerability, sharing those stories. Because I think if you have the courage to go through the experience and then share that experience, it does create this. That takes authenticity and it takes vulnerability to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Rohini, can you take us through the remaining three principles that you also highlight? Because I think those are very powerful as well. Yeah, so very briefly, Bhavna, the third principle is what I call, and it's good business too. And it's quite clear that without a compelling reason for change, 70% of change efforts fail. In an organization, DEI cannot be siloed or bolted on. It has to be congruent with the organization's purpose and and how business is done. And that's when I shared the example about Sodexo, that it was really part of the business growth strategy. The fourth principle is go deep, wide, and inside out. And we know that organizations are comprised of these very interconnected systems that work in concert with each other. And diversity, equity, and inclusion has to be infused into the processes, the policies, the structures. You have to take a systems approach. And what I say there is that you have to go embed DI wide through scaling governance frameworks. You have to go deep by seeding the organization with change agents, and you have to go inside out by integrating DEI into internal and external systems. And then the last principle is know what matters and count it, and that is about having the right metrics and accountability. So the metrics have to be aligned with the local context and you have to have whole people accountable. So that's a little bit about the five principles, make it local, Leaders change to lead change, and it's good business to go deep, wide, and inside out and know what matters and count it. Those are the five principles that I found really help with systemic, holistic culture change in organizations as it relates to DEI. So, for someone, let's assume, who is doing this work, let's say at an Indian organization, so mm-hmm. it's not for global MNCs, but let's say a local homegrown organization Mm -hmm. and wants to advance this agenda, but is in the early stages facing a little little or maybe a lot of resistance, what would you say is a good place to begin? What would be your advice? Yeah, so my advice is always that you have to start with leaders. You have to bring leaders on board. So you've got to really ensure that you've got some key allies in your leadership that are going to support you. So the work has to start with getting leaders to understand why this is important to their organization and so that they can speak up. So even within the leadership group, pick one or two key allies who are going to really support you. But you've then got to see the organization with other allies because it has to be what I call top down, bottom up and middle out. So it has to be throughout the organization. So that would be one place. I would also say that it is about looking at where your pain points are, looking at your data, looking at your pain points, parsing your data to understand what is it. Talking about advancing women is a very sort of generic statement, right? Where is it that you need to advance women? Is it women in customer-facing roles? Is it women in profit and loss, P&L business roles? Because you may have a lot of women, but they're all clustered in communications and in HR. So figure out where you need to advance women, for instance, and then work with that leadership 
and figure out what the blockages are, what's preventing women from advancing in those roles, and then create the solutions for that. Is it the nature of the job? Does that job, the way it's defined, the way it's described, do you need to have that kind of a job description? Or can you be, is that required for the job? How do you define what the role is? Take a look at those job descriptions because that may be discouraging women. And then get some role model women to who has, have stepped up to, the, to those roles to speak about it, to speak about how they did it. And get male sponsors to sponsor the women in those roles. Now, the leader that I talk about in India, Rishi is his name. He spent a lot of time because there were not many women in operational roles in Sodexo India, very demanding roles, and there weren't many women. So he went out of his way to identify women, but then just putting a woman in that role, which is male dominated is not enough. You've got to then put some support structures around to make sure that she is successful. And he spent a lot of time mentoring the women that he hired in those roles to make sure that they were successful. So it takes all those things. It starts with leadership. I would say it starts with your data, understand your pain points, and then customize your solutions to those very pain points. Mm, absolutely. Those are great strategies. So Rohini, let's assume we have a crystal ball in front of us and you can gaze into it and see exactly what the future might hold for diversity and inclusion. If let's be optimistic, let's say we're accelerating the work. Where do you think we would be in five to 10 years or where do you hope we should yeah. be in five to 10 years? I think with all the work that's happened, all the events that have happened rather around the world, I think there are more people that are woke now. I think there are more allies than we have ever had. And I, so I'm hopeful, as I said before, that transformation happens at the intersection of the personal and the systemic. And this really has to be both a personal and a professional journey for every one of us. With more allies, I'm hopeful that is going to happen. And I think that we've all got to examine our self-awareness, our inclusive behaviors and actions and use ourselves as instruments of change. But I do, I'm very hopeful that more and more organizations are today in India as well, realizing the importance and recognizing the benefits. And I hope that is going to continue, but I think it's a long journey. And I think, as I said, unless these conversations become normalized and they're not just in response to the next crises, I think it's going to be challenging it's going to be it's going to take all of us working together men and women but we have very powerful women in india and i think that they're going to keep pushing and i, I have a lot of hope in this next generation i think the next generation is not going to be pushovers they're going to walk away from organizations if they don't see them as places where they can belong and they don't see them as purpose-driven organizations they'll walk away so I think for all those reasons, I'm hopeful in women in India. I'm hopeful with the next generation. I'm hopeful with male allies, but it's going to take all of us working together to bring about that change. Great. Fantastic. I love that you're so optimistic. I'll borrow some of that optimism from you. 
Rohini, last question before I let you go. One of the reasons why we call this a Conscious Woman podcast is because to drive the kind of change that that you just spoke of, I, as you rightly said, we all need to practice self-awareness and live and lead consciously with a certain set of values that will really help us bring about the kind of change we want to see in the world. So I'm curious, Rohini, what would you say are some of the values you're consciously practicing in your work, in your life that are important to you? Yeah, I think the for me, the values that I'm consciously practicing are making a difference, having an impact. Obviously, for me, fairness, equity are extremely important. And I think reaching back and giving back, lifting other women up, ensuring that you've, I've had opportunities, but it's my responsibility to lift others as I climb. So I think it's really important that we do support others and help them to grow because that to me is a very core value. So those would be my values that I live by. Great. Beautiful. And if other people want to support you, where can they find you or how can they support the incredible work you're doing? Yeah, thanks for that question, Bhavna. I think folks can go on my website, www.rohiniyanand.com. And there's a lot of information there. A lot of these, the podcasts and resources and articles are all there, blogs. You can access those. There's also information for ordering my book. Leading Global Diversity, Equity and Inclusion and it's available on Penguin Random House in India in paperback. So feel free to pick that up because there's a lot of stories, Bhavna, as you mentioned, from India as well in the book. And I would just say to folks, keep doing the incredible work that you're doing because we need everyone to really speak up and step out and make a difference. Absolutely. Rohini, thank you so much for making time to have this conversation with us today. I think you've left us with so many practical and actionable insights that we can really we can all use to bring about change at an individual, systemic, collective level as well. Uh, so thank you so much and wish you all the best as you go on to do incredible work in, in advancing diversity, equity and inclusion globally. Thanks, Pavna. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you found the conversation to be insightful. If you did, please do leave us a review as that would be most helpful in helping others discover this podcast as well. To learn more about the work that we do, please go to shinomics.com. We look forward to having you tune in again for future episodes. Until then, may you be well, may you be happy, and may you be at peace. Like this Sochcast? Tune in for more with the Sochcast app from the Google Play Store.